Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Well, welcome to another edition of Word in Your Ear and to a world authority on Bob Dylan who's tracked down and interviewed 40 people who've worked with him, who've played with him, who've performed with him, recorded with him, uh, in order to shed some light on the, the inscrutable old rogue. And there's a fantastic picture of this book, which I was just reading this morning, where, where Dylan is, uh, he notices that Dylan tends to sign his autographs left-handed. When asked why, he says, well, if I write with my right hand, he says, they'll analyse my handwriting and find out all about me, which gives you an idea of what a tough challenge this book is. Anyway, it's called Pledging My Time, and this is the author, Ray Padgett. Ray, it's lovely to see you. Uh, thanks so much for having me, guys. Very good, and you're in Vermont, right? Yeah, up, up here in Burlington. Choking in the, uh, in, in the, the Canadian uh, forest fire smoke. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be inside right now. Going outside uh, hurts your eyeballs these days. So where do you start with Bob Dylan? When did he first come into your life? Uh, he first came into my life in the mid-2000s. Um, my dad had a couple records that I listened to, and I guess I was kind of vaguely intrigued by, but I wasn't, like, obsessed. But then somehow I saw he was coming to town. I lived in Chicago at the time. I talked my dad into taking me to see the show, and like a lot of people, I went to the show, didn't recognize a single song, re- didn't really understand what was happening. But the, I guess the difference than from other people, like, a like I was, the band. I was, yeah, I was, I was just intrigued by it. Like I didn't, I'm not even sure I liked it, which is the funny thing. But I was like, all right, this is different than I've seen. I'd seen Simon and Garfunkel on their reunion tour with my friend's mom the previous year, and like, you know, they sang the songs like you expect them to sing them, and they did the sound of silence, and everyone sang along and held lighters in the air. You know, so I sort of assumed that would be a Bob Dylan show, and it was so different. That I just it sort of sent me How down a rabbit hole at the time. I would have been high school age, maybe sixteen. Yeah, right, right. So you were shocked. I, I, I love, it, I love nothing like the record. I love the idea that somebody comes upon Bob Dylan as a teenager in the twenty first century. Yeah, 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 <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. absolutely amazing thing to me. So how did how did the idea of the book come to you? So I have been running this email newsletter uh, on Substack for a couple of years. 
called Flagging Down the Double E's, which is about Bob Dylan in concert. And most of them are just me writing about it. But I've interviewed some people for it. And, you know, I, I quickly discovered that when I interviewed people who had played with him, those were, you know, the most popular by far. And so I was just sort of plugging away at those. And after I had maybe, I don't know, 10, 15, I was like, you know, there could be a book here if I got another 20, 30 together, um, just, you know, just for a book, I could, I could put them together. And so then I sort of quietly started focusing in on the interviews and hence the book. Right, right. And what did you discover about, the, there's so many different elements of the book. It's really fascinating. But one is about what life is like as Bob Dylan, what, what, what he has to go through every day. And there's one thing talking about the number of gifts. Everywhere he goes, there are gifts. People give him gifts and there's just tables laid out each backstage uh, room, you know, laden with, with presents. What else did you discover about what his daily routine consists of? I love that anecdote. And another one I love that I think is also just revealing about what his life is like is someone, one of the musicians in the book recalled seeing after Bob Dylan had checked out of the hotel, his security team going into his room and cleaning out all the trash bins just, just so no one would go. find, a, no one would find and sell a draft of some unwritten song. And I mean, it's like a small little detail, but I, I feel like that tells you a lot. About I, I thought that was really, I thought it was really interesting. And it also... Yeah. It speaks of the of the kind of appeal of the book is that the great thing about musicians who go to play with Bob Dylan is they're absolutely enthralled by being with Bob Dylan. Aren't yeah, they, they really? remember every detail. They remember everything. Yeah, it's so vivid. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, when, in some case, in a lot of cases, these are going back, you know, 40, 50 years. And yeah. I was going to say, sixties people even more. <laughs> Because you talk, you you talk to people who were at high school with him, don't you? People who were in band. What? Well, who's the earliest one that you talked? Was to? it Louis Kemp? Was that the guy who saw the yeah. first ever Dylan concert? Tell us that story. Yeah, That's that was even. That was even. Yeah, that was even. I think before high school. I think that was that was what we call middle school here. Yeah, that Louis Kemp was. He's got this amazing story because he was a childhood friend of Bob's. They met at a Jewish summer camp in Minnesota. Yeah. And yeah, the first Bob Dylan concert and concert in heavy quotes. Um, and I guess Bob Dylan in heavy quotes too, because he was, of course, Bobby Zimmerman then. There was no yeah. Dylan. Um, but yeah, there at this summer camp, they had a day where all the campers could like take on a role of a counselor. You could be the pretend swim instructor or whatever. Um, and so Bob, young Bobby Zimmerman decides to be the music director. And so he just goes on the roof of the mess hall and just plays music all day for campers who walking by, mostly ignoring him, trying to you know avoid it. It was like this, you know, early public performance. And then the amazing thing about Louis Kemp is he's one of these people, again, a thread through the book of people who come in and out of Bob Dylan's personal and professional world over decades. He's a childhood friend. They lose touch. He goes on to found a big company. Then like 15, 20 years later, all of a sudden he's the producer of the Rolling Thunder Review right. in 1975. Which is absolutely amazing. It's astonishing, isn't he's it? He's in the fish business, isn't he? But is this the guy who's in the fish business? He's in the Yeah, kind of Bob Dylan sale. at one point sells him. Bob Dylan at one point tells him, if convincing him to do it, if you can sell fish, you can sell tickets, which I'm not sure that logic actually works, but it worked in that case. Yeah. But he, he also, so he kind of runs the Rolling Thunder tour. And then later on, doesn't, doesn't Bob say, can I come to a meeting with you? Tell us about that. Yeah, so... So he has been in Bob Dylan's world for a year or so now doing this concert stuff. And yeah, but Bob Dylan, he's still running his big, big fish company. Um, and so at one point, Bob Dylan says, can I come to this meeting you're going to with, you know, the head of some fish distributor or something? I don't know. So he's like, OK. So 
Louis Camp takes this meeting with some big person in the fish or food business. Bob Dylan comes along. The guy doesn't recognize him. Bob Dylan just sort of sits there in this you know, co- corporate conference room in New York. And then later, you know, they leave. Um, and then Louis Camp runs into this guy at like a conference, a fish conference later. And he, the guy's like, did you, how did you not tell me who that was with you? And he was like, uh, I don't know. I introduced him as Bob. He's like, you know, one of his assistants or someone younger was like, why was Bob Dylan in your conference room? And he couldn't believe that he had had no idea. That's fantastic. I love that. I, lo- I love all this. There's so much, so many examples of his spontaneity, just asking people on stage and asking people to come and record with the move, just haven't had any rehearsals or whatever. But the story of him meeting Scarlett Rivera is is, is amazing. I mean, that was the case. He, he supposedly saw her walking down the street, right? Tell us that story. Yeah, that's exactly right. He He's driving in a car down the streets of New York. He sees yeah. this woman who's carrying a violin case. And just if you've ever seen Scarlett on stage, you know, sort of a gypsy look, long hair, yeah, yeah, yeah. makeup, very intriguing. So he pulls over. He says, can you play that thing to the violin? She goes, yeah. He goes, all right, come get in the car. They go to his apartment. They jam for a couple hours. She says, all right, I got to go see a friend of mine who's doing a show. Do you want to come? She goes, yeah, all right. They go down. The friend turns out to be Muddy Waters. She, so they're, now they're at this Muddy Waters show. It gets yeah. even weirder from there because Bob Dylan goes up on stage with Muddy Waters is playing. And then he says, out of nowhere, I'd like to introduce my violin player who he's only met a couple hours ago. Scarlett Rivera all of a sudden has to drag her violin out of the case, go up on stage and jam with Muddy Waters and Bob Dylan when two hours ago she was two just, hours walking, down she just walking down the street. Yeah, exactly. and, then, and then she's in the Rolling Thunder Band for the next year. Plays on so, desire and everything. So he never kind of he never he never hires musicians the way that people ordinarily do it, you know, auditions and so forth. Is that is that the case? He just it's he does he, do it the more the more boring way sometimes. It's not right. always finding people on the street, but it is always uh, that sort of some level of spontaneity. It's not going to be that Bob Dylan sets up in a rehearsal room for two weeks and has three hundred bassists. You know, it's that it's never going to be that. Maybe he'll listen to three or four people, but his auditioning is probably just going to be like jamming on some old folk songs or something. And then the fun, the funny thing is, what is always, it seems like a trend throughout. No matter how people get hired, is they never quite know they're hired. Like there's never a all right, you Fred, you got the job, handshake. Here's a contract. It's like at some point, Bob or his manager, or someone's like, hey, so we're going to Europe in a couple of days. Do you want to come? And they go, uh, yeah, okay. They're like, I will right, we'll book you a plane ticket, and that's how they find out they're in the band. It's incredible. Like Ronnie Blakey, I think, was, wasn't she on tour with her band? And he just rang up and said, do you want to come in and record Hurricane tomorrow or whatever? And she just had to just drop everything, didn't she? And just think, I'm going yeah, to Yeah, I mean, the fun, amazing thing is she said no at first. And then, and she was, she, she, she would, you know, had, this is right after Nashville. So she's got a lot yeah. of success and she's doing her own music things. So she's like, no, I'm doing my own thing. And then she literally flies to, I think, at this Marshall shows because she's like rehearsing with her band. And they're like, are you crazy? Get back there. Go play with Bob Dylan. Like, we'll be here when you're done. So she's like, all right. So she calls Bobber's manager up. And yeah, that's how she joins. So t- talk about what, when he's found people, you know, how, how much or how little direction does he give people? Not much. Um, that's another through line of the book is that he will, he's never going to come in with chord charts. Or, you know, it's just going to be, he'll sort of get in a room. He won't even usually tell you what he's going to start playing. He'll just sort of start playing something, maybe one of his songs, maybe someone else's song. And you just kind of play along. And the only sort of direction that people have gotten is maybe implicit, but it's just don't play the same thing twice. You know, there's tons of stories in the book of like 
for instance, one that struck out to me, again, a small story, but I thought was indicative is this drummer who was playing with him in the late eighties. At one point was Bob's doing knocking on heaven's door, a song that did not have a drummer. So he's just, you know, standing side of the stage waiting to come back on. But he's the drummer's listening. He says, you know what? We could use a really big drum fill coming into this last chorus. So he sort of sneaks on stage, does this big drum fill. Bob looks at him, smiles, is really into it. But the drummer tells me, but I knew don't do it again. Like that was great for one night. But if you do it on second night, even though Bob loved it, he's, he's not going to be happy. And so it's, that's the vibe. You can't he's just not, like He's not yourself. looking for a formula. That's really interesting. It is really interesting. Because yeah. normally people, if something works, they repeat it, don't they? Yeah. And I, when the guy was telling me that story, I thought, and he, you know, he gets to the part, Bob looked at me, smiled, gave me a thumbs up. I thought he was going to say, you know, and now we use that part. And he said, no, we never did it again. So what's your what's your theory about his recording songs or playing songs? I mean, the general feeling is, and it's borne out by your book, that, that his songs are in a permanent state of evolution. That the, 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 the way he recorded it, the night he recorded it, it just happened to be the way it was that day. And from then on, it's going to be different. Is that the impression you get? I mean, he never sticks to the original plan, does he? No. I mean, the arrangements will change not just from tour to tour, but even from night to night where a song will sound kind of like, you know, punk rock one night and then be a slow ballad the next night. And it's all just, you know, in the moment. But as you say, I think he just always wants to keep moving. And that includes when he's playing a song he recorded in 1964. It's not going to sound anything like it did back then. Who does the set list? He does the set list. Presumably he sits in a dressing room beforehand and writes down what they're going to, what they're going to play. Yeah, he does it. He usually sometimes works with like his band leader, which was, you know, Rob Stoner and Rolling Thunders, Tony Garnier now. Um, but yeah, but he, he, he oversees it. And sometimes you can, you know, find a picture of like the set list that was on the stage. And a lot of times it doesn't bear a whole lot of uh, connection to what they actually played in concert. Oh, really? So how often do you see him? One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Uh, a, a couple times a year, maybe. Um, I'll, I'll go see his shows, you know, not as much as I'd like. I'd like to be so a you don't follow, him follow him on tour, tours. but I've You don't follow no. European tours, right? I, I wish. We, got, we have a three-year-old, so I don't think oh, I yeah, no, fo- follow someone around on a two-month <laughs> tour stage of my life, but yeah, I've got in, a in show a and I can. Micro bus. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> see, you must have met those people who do follow him around, mustn't you? They, you know, oh, people yeah, are, sure. 
there's people who see, you know, every single show and he plays like a hundred shows a year still in his eighties. And there's people who are at every one of them. Really? Literally there are everyone. Oh, oh yeah. Literally. That's not an exaggeration. You see, I always, I always feel very sorry for Bob Dylan. That he goes out on stage every night, he looks down in the in the front row, and, and pretty much the same people are there. Same people. <laughs> They've been with their arms crossed, looking disapproving, and you know, or writing yeah. notes, <laughs> secretly video recording it. They're completists, aren't they? They have to have a, a recording of every night, or else the you know their life falls apart. I can Is understand it? actually. <laughs> So I was I was intrigued. I was reading, just reading this morning. You you got Richard Thompson in there as one of the uh, one of the interviewees who I think only played. Did he play with him twice or once? I can't remember. So he he only played with him once, but he intersected twice because he toured with him. He played with him once in 1991. Again, spontaneously, like barely any rehearsal. He'd never even met Bob Dylan before. Then like. But 20, 20 plus years later, he's on tour with them and Bob Dylan covers one of his songs. So yeah, so the mi- book, I mean... And he misses it, doesn't he? Richard Thompson misses it. Because yeah, he's and, the next show. In typical Dylan fashion, no one gives Richard Thompson a heads up. He's like, he's like the first of like five on the bill and Bob's the last. So he plays his set and he like has to get to the next town, which, you know, hundreds of miles away. Um, so yeah, and, and then he's, you know, halfway there. And then someone tells him that Bob Dylan is, you know, currently playing his song back in Clarkston, Michigan. <laughs> it's extraordinary. I mean, I, they, you know, because going back to what I was saying earlier, you know, it's, it's always fascinating me seeing Bob Dylan in any kind of company of rock stars that no matter how big they are, they all kind of defer to him. You know what I mean? Even Mick Jagger and Paul McCartney would probably slightly defer to Bob Dylan. I think they would. Yeah, yeah. Jim Keltner, who I interviewed in the book and who's one of these people who's played with like every big rock star in the world, he said out of all the people he saw, the only one who seemed like he treated Bob Dylan like a peer and a friend was George Harrison. Right. He said that out of everyone, that was the one who like they they sort of acted like they were on equal footing. Everyone else, even people as big as George Harrison, you know, Elton John or, or Jagger or whoever, were like in awe, intimidated, you know, like nervous fans around Bob Dylan. That's an extraordinary aura to maintain for that long, long a time, isn't it? You know, um, it's a, it's absolutely fascinates me. The the that business about you know how much or how little does he tell the band? I want to know your theory on this. I saw him a few years ago at the Albert Hall with this kind of most recent band who were very kind of practiced and he's been there for a long time and he did this thing at the end of the show oh it's fantastic where they all just gathered to take the applause and they all stood there like a like a gunfighter and his gang all standing there with their hands slightly out from their from the waists <laughs> and they stood there and they just looked at the audience as this applause washed over them probably two three minutes might have been and then at some presumably responding to some unseen, unheard signal, they all turned and walked away. And I thought that is the most rehearsed bit of business I have Just ever seen on stage. Because you can't make that work unless yeah. you've thought about it. Yeah. <laughs> How does that that's happen? Probably the, that's probably the thing they rehearsed more than the music. It itself. probably, <laughs> probably is. The, you see, there like must it. be there must be some laying down of, of rules. There must be, you know, if when we all stand together, you know, because we've all seen bands standing together at the end of shows, and what do they all do? They all put their arms around each other. 
It's a natural human thing. Which they don't do, do they? Just they stand do not motionless. do that. Because yeah. nobody puts their arm around Bob Dylan, yeah. apart from a woman. Yeah. Yeah. I would bet, and they don't—they don't feel like one of those bands who are a kind of gang of brothers, do they? <laughs> they're just—they're just, they're just no. a bunch of professional yeah. musicians. You yes, know? they do. I would—I would bet that one again. A, a trend that comes through the book is that Bob doesn't tell people what to do; they just try to figure it out from what he's doing. So I would bet yeah. that's actually not rehearsed, but they just watch Bob and they say, "All right, Bob is not standing there waving to the crowd. He's not even smiling." So that's what we're going to do. Yeah, that would be my guess for yeah, something yeah, like yeah. that is that they're just doing what he's doing and he's not, oh, I'm going to, you know, high five the people in the front row. Yeah. Like, right, so we, we better not go high fiving the people in the front row either. I think this is really interesting. Yeah. So basically he's, he's the boy in the, you know, in the, in the class above you that everybody is just trying to please, isn't he? You know, that's how he's gone through life since 1963. He's been the one that everybody wanted to please. And it still works for him, doesn't it? It still works. Because you, you're also going back, you talk to, is it Paul Stuckey from Peter, Paul and Mary? Yeah, yeah. Who's, you know, who's obviously his life was changed by Bob Dylan, wasn't it? You know, Peter, Paul and Mary would not have happened without Bob Dylan. And there's a rather, rather, rather poignant bit at the end. He says, well, I haven't heard from him or seen him in 40 years. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't. Doesn't get on the phone to them like this, does But again, that's that's true. But an, a, a counterpoint, which was interesting, is I also talked from the early days to Martin Carthy. You know, who I'm yes. sure a lot of listeners know, yeah, big, yeah. big folk singer in the British world in the '60s, sort of a Paul Stuckey counterpart in a way in the UK. And he also had seen Dylan, you know, a bunch in the '60s and a little in the '70s, and then basically hadn't seen him in decades. And then just last fall, actually, right be- right after, right before I talked to him, excuse me. Bob Dylan invited him to a concert and he comes back, he invites him backstage and he goes backstage and he sees Bob Dylan for the first time in like 30, 40 years. And he says, we just fell into each other's arms. Oh, so there is, there really are these so people so where, nice. yeah, I, Bob Dylan's not going to, you know, have a weekly call with you to catch up or whatever, but <laughs> no. he does remember people and he does sort of get, you know, they do people come in and out of his world over decades and decades. That happens a lot in the book. There's, there's, it's interesting that everybody who you interview, they don't talk about how well or badly that the tour is going or the projects are going at the time. They just talk about the intensity of actually working with Dylan. But there's one moment where, I think it's the only moment in the book I noticed where Rob Stoner, I think, talks about the second Rolling Thunder tour. And the tickets aren't selling, and it's all going kind of really, really kind of badly. That's very unusual because there, there, there are very few moments when you feel that Dylan is, is kind of down on his luck, don't you think? Yeah, I think that's fairly true. I also think it's true that mo- the musicians are kind of just in this blinkered, intense yeah, world where they're just so focused on the music. It's, I mean, a yeah. lot of them find it very, very fulfilling, but it is not an easy job, right? It's probably no. an easier job to like no. you rehearse with ex famous musician. And then you do three months of the greatest hits doing in the same way every night. And if you want, you can sort of do it, you know, half awake. Yeah, um, yeah. They're like, it's this intense. I mean, people burn out. Some people quit, some people get fired, but like even the people who overall had a very good experience, it's just sort of, you're so focused on the music and on yeah. Bob Dylan and on getting the songs right. And on doing it right. But yeah, I think, I think the Rob Stoner thing is interesting because it is unusual that a musician is paying much attention to how is it selling or you know even even does the audience like it necessarily yeah stan lynch of the heartbreakers played with him for a while and he talks about the idea that you there's that constant fear that you might get fired there were some people were fired weren't they just during the tour 
Yeah, yeah. One guy, uh, much more recent, uh, about a decade ago, Duke Robillard was one of these guys where he toured. He'd he'd played with Bob on a record, Time Out of Mind, and it went well. And then, like fifteen years later, he joins his band, tours for a month, goes well. Dylan seems to like it. Goes on his second tour, and on day one, the thing that he was doing on the first tour that Dylan liked, all of a sudden Dylan doesn't like, and he doesn't know why because you know Bob's not going to tell him directly. And it, you know, yeah. it kind of goes sideways, and he ends up you know, getting, was he, did he jump or was he pushed? He leaves <laughs> um, halfway through the tour. Like, like one day he's on stage and the next day he's not. Yeah. And he still, you know, never quite knows exactly what happened. All right. So who have you, are you continued to do the, to, to interview these people since finishing the book? Yeah. I'm, I mean, that's the nice thing about having this newsletter is that, you know, the book, uh, it's it's ongoing. I'll keep running some in the newsletter. And yeah, maybe, you know, in a few years, maybe there will be a volume two once I've amassed enough. But I mean, for all the people I've in the book, there's so many more I want to talk to. So I'm going to keep trying to not. So who, who, who are, are the ones that you really like to talk to that's yeah. most difficult to get to? It, it's funny because you'd think the most difficult are like the most famous. And that's not it at all, necessarily. Like I've got, you know, Jeff Bridges and people in the book, and that wasn't not, yeah. that wasn't very hard. But like one guy I want to talk to who's not famous at all, but I think is phenomenal is this drummer named George Roselli, who played with Bob for like 10 years, including most of the shows I saw, because he had just joined when I started seeing the band in 2004. And again, he's not a name. No one outside of Bob Dylan superfans knows who this guy is. But, you know, there's this mystique and secrecy around the world of Bob Dylan, which is probably why this no one else wrote this book before, it's hard to get people to talk to you. The first few were almost impossible. Once I got a couple, it got a little easier because I could people saw, the musicians would see, okay, he's smart, he knows his stuff, it's about the music, it's not dumb or gossipy. But even still, I mean, <laughs> even still, some of these people take a year or more because they're so wary about putting a foot wrong. Yeah, no, and and fair enough. Um, you know, no one wants to say anything out of turn. But yeah, like I say, once people see what I'm doing, it it's gotten a little easier. But yeah, there's still a ton of people I wanna I wanna talk to. Can you imagine writing a book like this about anybody else? I don't think. Yeah, I don't think it'd be that interesting. They'd be they there'd be much more overlap. It'd be like this after two or three chapters. I think it'd be the same story with a lot of people. But it's been such a varied career with such a varied group of musicians. And, you know, this book, a lot of people have been like, this offers a window into what actual like day-to-day life on the road with Dylan is that no one's had before. But like, he's probably, he has more interesting day-to-day life (laughs) than a lot of other people. I think you're absolutely right. Because with most people, whatever artist you choose, for a lot of them, it's a a gig, isn't it? It's a job. It's the time I toured with so-and-so. But this is Bob Dylan. And they're all you know, their, their memories are so vivid and so excited. And this is, this is the one thing they'll always talk about. Stan Lynch, who you met, you mentioned a minute yeah. ago from the Heartbreakers. He's, he had a line, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something like, you know, I've done a lot of great things in my life, but if there was one section I could do over again, it'd be the time we toured with Dylan. And this is a guy who played with Tom Petty for like 30 years. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. He played with Dylan for one year. It's like a tiny little fraction of his career. He said, like, that was the thing. I would, the rest I wouldn't. That's the one thing I would do over if I could. Well, it's a fantastic book. Uh, I, I love this kind of thing. I could read this kind of thing forever, you know, just, just <laughs> stories of people who found themselves on stage with Bob Dylan and how it's not like being on stage with anybody else at all because it really isn't. It's a terrific piece of work. Uh, thanks very much for talking to us. Uh, thanks. I really appreciate you having me on. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.